think that that uh, lyric of that song could sum up maybe what we've gained so far in Second Corinthians. We're up to, we're finishing chapter four this morning and going through these first four chapters, I think you could see Paul writing, if he was a poet, writing something like this, he certainly was writing it with his life by saying, what grace have I found? I was the one that was fighting against the Lord Jesus. I was persecuting his followers, killing them. What grace have I found that my life could shine, could contain? Last week we talked about being vessels, that I could hold your greatness. If I, if I can just be that after everything I've done to you, if you'd still see me worthy to contain your greatness, that would be enough for me is what that song is saying. Could it be enough for us if all the things that we endure, all the things that we see, all the things that we feel and experience all point towards his use for them in our lives? Would that be enough? Well, this morning I want to talk about this strange path to the present, which will be found through the future. And it's difficult for me, uh, by way of confession, it's difficult for me to solve problems that are down the road until I get the ones that are on my plate now out of the way. Some of us guys are a little more bent towards that, I think. But it's probably a fairly normal human condition where it's like, I know there's things coming that I need to be aware of, I need to be focused on, and I need to solve some of those things, but I got too many things on my plate right now, I can't really deal with that yet. The amazing thing is, once I get some of those things that are in my here and now taken care of, all of a sudden I'm like a genius for the future stuff. Where before I was like, I don't know how am I supposed to do that. I get those things out of my way, and now all of a sudden it's like, okay, now I, I know what to do, I've got ideas and that kind of thing. Now, I am so focused on the now and cleaning the plate uh, clear before I can focus on, I don't know, dessert, if you will, that Pastor Gary triggered a mental block for me when he told you a corny Bible joke. So I was like, okay, now I've got one to tell, and I'm not going to be able to focus on the rest of the sermon until I share mine with you. So this is an example of how my brain works. I cannot do the work of the Lord until I get my dumb stuff out of the way. So... uh so the question for you is this, who is the, who's the shortest person recorded in the Bible? Uh, some of you have uh, followed the controversy. You've heard Nehemiah, right? That's, he's the shortest one, but, but archaeologists have found it's not him. You ready? It's Bildad the shoe height. Yeah. There's a recent discovery is on the cover of all the magazines. So there you go. Okay. Now back to work. So that's an example of what I'm talking about, not being able to think about what's to come because I'm too wrapped up in the moment. Some of our wisdom would tell us that you've got to deal with the here and now, and that's certainly true. But I'm talking about a focus. I'm talking about a distraction. I'm talking about the thing that that competes for our attention and gives us hope for something bigger. We are way too caught up in the fact of uh, our health currently or can we pay these bills or are my kids taking to the parenting thing I'm trying to do or have I lost full control? Are the relationships in my life satisfying to me right now? Am I losing control of them? The here and now screams at us so loud that it's so distracting that how could we ever have a chance to think about anything but? But I think what we're going to find in our text this morning from Paul is that handling today has much more to do with what we know about yesterday and what we know about tomorrow than we ever give credit for. 
So let's get into this. Let's dive in. We're going to pick up in verse 13 where Paul writes to us. He says, since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus. And I'm going to stop there awkwardly at a non-stoppable space in the sentence on purpose. Paul is bringing us uh, to, it, it's neat how Paul's mind works. He was so uh, in tune with his Old Testament. He knew his scriptures so well that he wants to make a statement. In order to get there, he passes through some sort of obscure statement out of Psalm 116. He knew David's writing so well that he said, as it's been written before, because I believe in something, I'm going to speak up. So I'm going to do the same thing David did, is all Paul is saying here. The language sounds a little bit superfluous, if you will, to get there. But the point I think he's making is this, is that he's grabbing this from a context. He's grabbing this from Psalm 116, who what is more than just that simple little statement. David, as he so often did, was writing a, a, an expression to the Lord and to his readers and hearers that his enemies are moving in, that his life is being threatened, that he's always got a target on his back, but he knows who his protector is. He knows who his redeemer is, who his savior is. David was always under threat of persecution, always under threat of attack. Being the top dog in, in the kingdom means that you're always being gunned for. And so David knew that, but what made David, I believe, a man after God's own heart is he knew who to turn to for protection. He didn't just strengthen himself. He relied heavily on his Lord as his ultimate savior. So Paul, I think, has a kinship with David. He can relate to the pressure. He can relate to the affliction that comes with that. He can relate to a really good memory of the previous mistakes that he's made. And David had all that kind of guilt when he had sinned with Bathsheba. I think David, if I'm, if I'm, if I'm speculating here, I think David was close to Paul's heart. And that's why he related to him so much so that he was just penning this letter to the Corinthians. He rattled off some statements of David's from Psalm 116. But these are important statements. What Paul is saying is that the foundation of his faith was something that had already happened. The foundation of Paul's faith was the past. This is the important point. If you're following along in your notes, I apologize if I bounce around a little bit, but if you're following along in your notes, the first thing I want us to extract from this little statement is that you and I need to know our history. Now, I know my story pretty well. If you ask me where I was born, how I grew up, what I, how I did in school and anything, I could tell you all those things. It's my favorite subject. It's all about me. I could tell you those things. I don't know a ton about the history I should know about. Pastor Bill would pick on me because he knew his history really well, knows his history really well. And he would pick on me about that. And he would say, I was, I was a compliment that he would say, you young guys don't know anything about history. I was like, oh, he called me young. I'll take it. Even though he's calling me an idiot, he's calling me young, so I'd prefer that. Uh, but he would say, you guys don't know your history, because he would know something about, you know, Civil War, World War II, something he was applying. And I would tell him, I'm getting there, but I haven't gotten through all my Middle Earth history yet. So once I know more about Middle Earth and Lord of the Rings and stuff, then I'll get there. I promise I'll get there. So I got my priorities. The important thing in this is that Paul had a foundation to his faith and his foundation was something that had already happened. Now he had spent some time writing to the Corinthians already in the first letter about the thing that he's alluding to. 
In 1 Corinthians 15, we understand that what Paul is talking about here is an actual physical resurrection that has happened for Christ. We stopped. Remember when we were in verse 14, I stopped in that awkward place where he said, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus. I'm overemphasizing the point that perhaps his readers might have glossed over, but this is bound in history. Paul is saying, the reason for my confidence now, the reason why I can write to you the things that I'm writing to you, the reason why I'm not shaken by all that I'm going through is because of something that already happened, that he was raised. That God the Father took his, his only son whom he had crushed for your sins and for mine and he did exactly what he promised he would do. That in three days he would raise him up bodily, resurrecting him, beating death and the grave. So we can see where Paul would be drawing from this for his motivation, for his strength. But this is what he said to the, to the Corinthians in his first letter in chapter 15. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Sounds a little bit like I believe, so I told you. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas then to the twelve. Cephas is Peter. And if you know Peter's story, if you know how it ended in his uh, um, support or lack thereof for Jesus, that is one of the most beautiful statements in all of Scripture. That Paul is saying, this is what happened. He rose from the dead, as miraculous as that is, and before he got to the apostles, he stopped in to say hi to Peter. If you don't know that story, if you don't know that background, I encourage you to dig in and see why is that such a beautiful statement that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. If you're an apologist, if you uh, kind of geek out a little bit on the defense of the Christian faith, that's a very important statement to you because it corroborates so much of what we believe, that Jesus was seen by 500 people at once who all told the same story. You know how hard that is to do? How hard it is to get the same story to come from that many different people? If we have a tragedy or we have some event that happens down the street and 20 people see it, you're going to get nearly 20 different stories. So Paul, Paul is saying here that what happened in the past is that Jesus rose. He stopped in to say hi to Peter, which is super significant. Then he appeared to the rest of the apostles. And then he was seen by over 500 people that day of whom most are alive, though some have fallen asleep or they have died. And we'll stop there, though he continues. We'll come back to this chapter in a little bit. So the foundation of Paul's faith, what, what put him on solid footing is something that was historical, something that had already happened. But the focus of Paul's faith, what drove him, what led him to continue was the future. So before we get into this future part a little bit, which is where we'll spend the rest of our time, let me ask you just about historical events real quick. If I'm making the claim to you, it's important for us to know what has happened. How well do you know? How well do you know the basics of the past resurrection of Jesus Christ? How much of what I just said to you, I threw out several little facts about the circumstances surrounding his resurrection. How much of that was maybe the first time you'd heard that? You don't have to raise your hand or tell me. Or how much of that has got some cobwebs on it? You're like, oh, I forgot about that. Or I have no idea what you're talking about about Cephas. Why, why do I need to know that? If that's where you're, where you're at right now, you're, for one, you're in good company. That's where most of us are. 
needing to brush up on our understanding of these things. But it's a perfect acknowledgement, a perfect time for you to acknowledge. I don't know enough about what has happened on my behalf in the past to be encouraged about it today. That's the simple part of the formula that Paul is trying to explain is because God has raised up his son, it matters as to why I can endure huge boulders hitting me in the head. Paul is making that connection. I can do what I'm doing today because of that event. If you are struggling to get through the events of your day, the circumstances of your life, there's a high likelihood that you don't know enough about what God has already done on your behalf to strengthen your faith in him. That's why we stopped where we stopped in that sentence. Do you ever take time to rehearse the blessings that God has given you? Have you ever written out your testimony like you see so many uh, do when it's baptism time, where they tell us their story of how God led them to the place of wanting to follow him? Have you ever done that yourself? Have you done it in a while? Does it, does it help you or would it, I shouldn't even ask that, it would help you to spend some time to rehearse and remind yourself of all that God did to lead you to the point where now you're following him. Some of you might say, well, I've done that before. I know my story like the back of my hand, like Brent, it's my favorite subject, what went on in my life. You might be able to relate to that, but do we do it more regularly than that? You know, some of us are in a, a devotional pattern in our life where we try to w- once a day or every few days or whatever the case is, is that we try to get alone with the, with the word of God and, and to offer a prayer to him and to have him speak to us and that sort of thing. What if we added as part of that a recollection of, Lord, how have you been God in my life over the last week? Maybe we don't have to go back to when we were in our 20s or when we were in our teens or even just 10 years ago or five years ago. Maybe we need to improve the practice of looking backwards over the last week to be reminded of why God's faithfulness in our history builds us for our today. So we need to know our history. Pastor Bill has been right as much as I don't want to admit it. I've got other things I want to read. But you need to know your future as well. We're going to start verse 14 over though. We're going to apply this in the second half of the verse and we're going to move forward. Paul says, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. Remember the us and the we's in Paul's writing are the apostles, those that are enduring the suffering. Those are trying to lead by example. We trust and the reason of our, our faith is there is because we believe like you, we will be resurrected physically. We will meet together again. If I never get back to you because somebody has taken my physical life on the road or something, I know that I will meet you again is simply what Paul is saying. So he's confident in his future. Now, from my experience, maybe you can relate to this, that when I'm so wrapped up in the now, when my plate is so full of the things I've got to solve, when I'm so worried about how I'm going to untangle what, what I often refer to as like the plate of spaghetti where you're trying to pull out one strand at a time and you feel like you're making progress, but the plate just keeps filling and filling and filling. You know, there's a reason why Jesus gave us in the Sermon of the Mount, Matthew 6, where he says, don't worry about tomorrow because it will deliver all of its own new problems for you. Try to deal with the plate of spaghetti that you have today. Pull out one strand at a time. When I get so wrapped up in that that I can't see the forest for the trees, every once in a while, someone or something will remind me of this grander picture, this bigger picture. I shared with you last week that it was the experience of laying under the stars at the men's retreat. 
to be reminded of the fact that all the things that I think are the biggest thing in the world are this big and not even visible from space. To, to be put in my place, to be reminded that everything that is consuming me is not all consuming. I need these reminders of the future to change my perspective on the now. Some of you may remember this uh, illustration. It's not mine. I can't claim anything for it, but I love it so much it came to mind this week is getting ready for this. I've got this rope uh, kind of here in the front. I don't know if you can see that here, but what I did at the end of this rope is I put some black tape just on the end of this. What this entire rope represents is all of eternity. I even made it go out the back door. I don't know if you can see that, but you can't see the end of this rope. So that's the illustration. See, brilliant. <laughs> that's why I get to do this for a day job, you know? Uh, so this rope goes on and on and on forever. This part of the rope that is marked in black is the 40, 50, 60, 70, 90, 100 years of the life that we have been given on this earth. All of this exists, but we so rarely think about all of this because we are so wrapped up in this piece which I, I actually th- thought about going much smaller on this so that it wouldn't be visible from the back because that's kind of the point too. The Bible says our lives are but a vapor. They come and they go. And I don't know if you ever get caught up in this. If you let your head go wild, it's like, could I be that insignificant? If you think about that, that we're going to have a lifespan that just came and went like everybody else, that the Lord uses the whole thing to advance his purposes as this kind of whole moving mechanism that we're one little piece. And this sounds really non-encouraging, isn't it? Or discouraging, I guess is the English way to say that. It's very discouraging in our day and age. We're supposed to look at this as the entire rope, that all that matters is now. This is what was going on in Paul's audience. A lot of them were saying there is no resurrection of the dead. That once you're gone, you're gone. This was creeping back into the church and Paul was trying to deal with this. So, so what Paul is saying is because I believe that this entirety of the rope is also in my future, I'm less worked up about what happens here. You see, this is the part of the problem is that we have spent so much of our existence and our worries and everything managing that this part goes well instead of seeing it as a dress rehearsal or a practice run for all that the Lord is promising and offering us. Some of us need to hear this this morning. Am I right? Because this little part of the rope has not been real enjoyable. It's been very, uh, uh, it's, it's fraught with suffering. It's, it's loaded with turmoil, testing, and hardships. You can imagine why Paul going through what he was going through needed to be reminded that the rope was much, much bigger than that what he was seeing. This is where we are at. This is our opportunity to be thinking about, to be reminded of what, what eternity really looks like. And if you've ever had like sort of that comforting hand on your shoulder, right? When you're in the midst of kind of your, your twitching, panicking, losing control kind of moment, and someone just kind of says, steady down. That's, that's what the reminder of eternity provides us. Our knees are knocking from the issues of life. And, and the hope and the promise of eternity and rest and, 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 and peace and safety just is like a gentle hand on our, shul- our shoulder. I, I would give anything to have seen Paul's face when he was ushered into the kingdom of God. I would have loved to have seen his expression after enduring what he endured to then say, enter into your rest. Talk about a guy who can appreciate comfort and rest. 
What does our eternity involve? Our eternity, our eternity involves the resurrection of our body, which was not popular in, or at least not uh, uh, fully agreed upon in uh, in the Corinthian circles. So Paul is making the reminding them that we are rescued from this. But if if this wasn't promised to Paul while he's at the height of all of these things, I think at the very least we would say that his suffering would be intolerable. So we go back to chapter 15 of the first letter he writes, 1 Corinthians 15. He says, for if the dead are not raised, which is the problem he's trying to combat there, not even Christ has been raised. The whole point of Jesus being raised was to beat the power of sin and death. And so if that didn't, if, if we don't get raised, what would be the point of him being raised? Verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, if it's only for the black strip of the tape, we are of all people most to be pitied. What idiots we would be to give our lives for this is what Paul is saying. What a moron I would be to take the stones and the beating and the rejection. And, and even from my own church people, what would I, what would I be accomplishing? It would be intolerable. Last week, we talked about the fact that the world is searching for purpose and meaning. How meaningless would this be if it didn't count for all of eternity? Paul continues in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, we are in danger every hour. I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. If there's no resurrection of our bodies, I'm not taking on any more lions, tigers, and bears, oh my. I'm not dealing with any of these kinds of things. I'm going to the restaurant, going to the pub. I'm going to put my feet up and relax. He would be right to do so. You see, this measure of this understanding of eternity is what gave Paul meaning in his sufferings. So there's a resurrection of the body, but also there's this transformation of the body that happens. He gives us a, a bit of a strange statement here in verse 16. He says, so we don't lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. There's some, not controversy, but two sides of looking at this when he talks about the outer man, inner man, and people are commenting, theologians are commenting one way or the other. I think it's easy for us to see that he could be talking about the fact that uh, we age. And it seems like maybe Tom Brady's the only person on the planet who doesn't. I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm sore the next day just having watched him play. And yet he's still going strong, right? So we all recognize that there is a decay going on in our lives, that, that we are aging day by day. I just locked eyes on my friend George, though. When I work out with him, he doesn't seem to have aged either. Tom Brady, all right, uh, still lifting twice as much weight as I can. I'm like Pee Wee Herming it, and he's looking over me. You're going to be okay there? Yep, just fine. <laughs> you know, it's terrible. Anyway, um, all right, focus, back to the notes. Paul is saying that it's clear that the outside of me, the natural man, is wasting away. 
the theological approach to this more than just the obvious of the physical shell or what I often refer to as the bag of bones that I carry around, that the, the physical shell isn't the only thing that's happening. It's the sin that I've been born in. Romans uh, leads us to an understanding of the, the sinful nature that I have, the, the, the man of sin that I am on the inside. Romans 6, in particular, in verses 5 and 6, says, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. That's great. That's what we've been talking about. Verse 6 gets pointed, though. He says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin, that's the inner man, the indwelling me, might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. The part of me that as my mommy laid me in the crib and I could make life all about me and share my needs very easily and effortlessly, the part of me that made me want to make a kingdom to myself is the part that Paul says has been crucified with Christ and ever since then is being led like like a like its own little entity being walked right off a cliff. He says it's being led to nothing. It's a very ominous thought if you think about this, that this, this, this uh, body of sin, this innermost me that tries to dominate the little strip at the end of the rope, that tries to rule the day, that tries to build that entire strip of tape around my own little kingdom is being walked off a cliff, Paul says, as the inner me, the spirit of Christ, is dwelling in me and is actually starting to take over. So I don't think Paul is saying just one or the other. I think that the natural illustration for us is to relate my flesh is decaying and dying from the moment it was born. It should represent for me the goal of what happens with the inner sinful me, that it is being walked to its end as the spirit takes over. He also makes this point to the Ephesians in chapter 3. He says, according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Now, just off to the side, if you're following along in the text, if you're looking at kind of the paragraph that we're teaching through, I'm, I'm pulling two statements he makes off to the side, working around them a little bit, because I think they're very supportive to what would drive Paul. Where, where did his motivations come from to be able to endure this? We talked about his knowledge of the past and his hope for the future, but those things are just, they can just be intellectual pursuits. If you know those things, it doesn't necessarily transform your existence. There's got to be a way to practice that. And I think Paul is indicating, it's what I love about Paul's writings is he's always uh, right up front with his motivations, the things that really get him out of bed in the morning, that get him to walk down and have that big giant mug of affliction that we talked about last week and ready for it. He gives us a hint as he starts verse 15. He says, this is back in 2 Corinthians 4. Um, four, I put five down, sorry. So 415, he says, for it is all for your sake. Paul wakes up in the morning with the faces of the people he loves, figuratively speaking. Paul feels each stone coming down and crushing his bones and pictures the faces of the people that are watching in horror wondering if their friend, if their leader is getting knocked out. Paul says, I think about you and your physical presence. The fact that you need some inspiration weighs on me. 
We make so many statements about, well, I live my life for Jesus Christ and I don't care what man thinks and all these kinds of things. And it sounds religious. It sounds pious. It sounds good. But I like Paul's instruction better. I like the fact that I have physical consequences if I blow it. If I'm not good to my wife, I get to see the disappointment on her face. If I let my kids down, then they, they will show that appropriate reaction. If I let you down, then you're going to let me know. I like those kind of physical restraints because I have the same sinful heart that is getting walked off a ledge that if I'm not careful, I give it all the rain and the rule and that little strip of tape on the rope. I like the fact that I have to be reminded that real people suffer the consequences of my decisions. It's not convenient and it's very uncomfortable, but it's a safety because, uh, because Paul is saying that, that they, it is for your sake, but it's motivated by a second thing. And this is going to be, uh, evident, um, in a verse of scripture I can't wait for us to get to in the next chapter. So he says this in verse 15. He says, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Paul's kind of a church growth guy. So if somebody says it's not about numbers, it's not really about a number. The point is that Paul says, I want more. I want more and more people to be able to thank God. I want more and more people to give him more glory. I want the light to shine so bright that it's so obvious that the glory is God's. And so he says, because I'm motivated by the faces of the people that I love and serve, and that I'm motivated by God's glory shining as bright as it possibly can. I want more and more people to increase in thanksgiving. So he's motivated by God's glory, simply put. The passage that I can't wait for us to get to is in chapter 5, verse 9. And the, the little part that we'll take out of it is Paul says, we make it our aim to please him. He's aiming for God's glory on everything he does. Now Paul is going to again be very human with us. We, we often think St. Paul wrote all these things. Paul's trying to say, no, like human Paul wanting to be Saul before God changed my name, everything. That's who I want to be. He says in verse 17, for this light momentary affliction, which might sound like sarcasm, but I believe based on everything Paul has said, he believes that the intense pressure and persecution that he's under is light and momentary or temporary. It doesn't make any sense to me, but he says, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Paul is fixated on the fact, yes, it hurts right now. Yes, I'm getting my kick, te- my teeth kicked in. Yes, I'm getting dirt thrown in my eye and I'm, and I'm crying over it and I'm bleeding and I'm doing all the human reaction that you would expect from that. But I also expect, if we go back to the beginning of the letter, to an ex- to receive an extreme weight of comfort from the God of all comfort. My coin is really heavy on the side of suffering. Right now it's, it's weighing down. I can't even bear the weight of it, but God's going to flip that over when it's time. I'm going to be ushered into his kingdom. He's going to say, you don't have to go through that anymore. Paul's saying, I hold on for that. That may not sound very spiritual, but again, like David, Paul's like, I know who my savior is. I know the enemies are pressing in on me. I know I need rescue because the almighty Paul is not as almighty as everyone thinks he is. I'm dragging to the finish line. I'm trying to get into the door. I'll take the beatings. I'll take the suffering. I'll take the shipwreck because he's promised that as soon as I get through that door, it's all done. 
that the rest of that rope is a promise of extreme glorious comfort beyond all comparison, he says. Our obsession with now, our obsession with the black strip on the rope ruins our growth and the reward that we have for the future because it robs us of the focus on the right things. In my experience, most of us will not determine to unplug from the now in order to think about the past that has been provided for us or the future that awaits us. It's too tempting to stay caught up in all this stuff. It's too tempting to overstress about the way things are going. It's very difficult to just kind of unplug from that and say, I need to be reminded of things I've forgotten about. I need to be reminded of the things, all the ways that the Lord has paved the way for for his goodness to be revealed in my life. And I need to also dwell on this whole idea of a concept I never dwell on, which is what is heaven like? What does rest really mean? What is it? What will it feel like when I don't have to carry this stuff anymore? And that's why I think that there's a lack of real hope floating around our society today. That's why the church is losing its impact because we ourselves are drowning in the now that we're not conveying enough about the whole thing of like Paul is saying, this doesn't hurt as bad as it looks like because it's not forever. Do we believe that? Do we trust that? Paul wraps up the section in verse 18. He says, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Why? For the things that are seen are transient. I love the way the English Standard Version puts the word transient in there. Some of your translations might say temporary which is great and same meaning, but transient just gives me the impression of somebody who's got their belongings kind of there and they're ready to move on. You know, whether it's fitting in the shopping cart or it's 10 layers of clothes or something, what we would consider someone being transient, they don't have the intention of staying. This is what Paul is trying to see. Our sufferings, our pressures, our afflictions, they never unpack their bags because they're not sticking around for long. They're very transient. The things that you and I focus on, dwell on, obsess about, are heartbroken over, are transient. He says, but the things that are unseen, that whole rope, the rest of it, are eternal. What will change your today more than anything is what you remember about yesterday and what you know about tomorrow. Some of you might have been caught up in a religious exercise of trying to like will yourself into a more peaceful existence or or to give God more of things of your life so that he'll take some of the pressure off and that you won't suffer as much. Religion says I might, italics emphasized, I might have a future because of the actions of my present. If I do the right things on the little black part of the, of the stripe, God will give me all the rest. So if I work, 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 if I obey, if I help the little old ladies across the street, if I do the right things, God gives me all of this. But what a relationship says with Jesus, what faith says is that my present actions on the little strip are because or they are motivated by my promised future. I'm still, I still have to live in the now. We can't just unplug and say, I'm just going to stare at heaven the whole time and not deal with my responsibilities. I still must live in the now. I just don't have to live for it. 
I can embrace the now, the, the little black strip on the rope. I can embrace the now as an investment for the rest of the rope, for the rest of eternity, by accepting all the things that the Lord has planned for me while I'm living out that little strip. That's the hardest part for us. Some of you are dealing with things I couldn't fathom walking through. I don't know the grace that God has measured for you to endure them. Some of you wouldn't be able to relate to some of the things I've been through. That isn't really the point. It isn't a comparison about who has it worse. It's do we have the same spirit of Christ who has taught us what he's already done. He's already defeated death in the grave and he's promised that same rescue for you and me. If, If nothing else in this life but to contain the glory of God, whatever measure or form that looks like, if it means getting dragged through the, through the, the road like the apostles did, or maybe it means just not getting the, the dream job or the dream spouse or the, the, all the things, or maybe just a moment's peace, you know, maybe just not getting that. Some of our lives are going to be marked with suffering right up until the day we kind of make it just through the door and God says, enter into your rest. The question is, is that enough for our hope? Is that enough for our ability to continue to give him glory, to want to be those vessels that contain it? Would you stand as we pray about these things? God, it is an encouraging message to know all that you've done, but Lord, it's heavy all at the same time because we feel the now. And we shouldn't fault one another, we know, Lord, about the pain and the some of the panic and the, the misdeeds and actions that take place in the midst of our pain. Lord, we're growing and we're we're learning through that. But Lord, we need your grace. That this hope of of a lighter lighter rest, God, while it eludes us for now, it is promised to us. May we bank on it. May we know more about your kingdom. May we strive more to walk in that as opposed to the one that's being built around us. Thank you, Lord, for your grace that you show us. Thank you, Lord, for the faith that you've infused these people with, Lord, to continue to give their existence over to you and trust you with the pieces. Thank you, Lord, for that. In Jesus' name, amen.